Heavenly Father, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. And the reason we gather on Sundays is to meet with you in a way that's profound because we're with other believers who love you and trust in Christ Jesus and who desire to encounter the living God, not only in worship, not only in communion, which we'll do later, Father, uh, but in hearing the word of God. Um, I pray that you would be honored and glorified by everything that is said here, everything that is felt and enjoyed by your people. And I pray that your passion for your own glory and your, your passion for the joy of the people who love you and who are called by your name reaches a very, very high height, that you are exalted today in everything that is said. And I pray that what I feel you've given me today to speak to these people of Risen Hope will be sanctified by you, Father, that you'd keep my mouth from speaking any error at all, and that you would exalt and glorify your name by opening the hearts of your people, myself included, to receive what you have for us today. We say these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome. Um, for, the past, for the past few weeks, we've been um, going through the remainder of Colossians 1, and we've been looking at God's great work of reconciliation, and we've been looking at that through the lens of the Apostle Paul's ministry, what he was called to do for the church in Colossae. And we know that God's work of reconciliation began on the cross. He purchased a people for, by his own blood. But it was manifested in the ministry of the apostles and manifested really in everyone who has um, participated in this ministry of reconcilia- reconciliation. And so this week and next week, we'll be closing out this series. And what I want to focus on these two weeks is what was Paul's hope? What did he want to accomplish through his ministry, through the stewardship he received from God. And my own personal hope is that as we go through this text today, that we're asking questions of ourselves, and those questions are, does my life reflect someone who is participating in this ministry of reconciliation? Is, is my heart, my disposition towards God, my disposition towards other people, does it reflect this? And, and really my hope is that we would be spurred deeper into God's great work of reconciliation, um, because he's doing that in our lives, in our workplaces, where we live, where we eat, um, and that we would, we would lay hold of that um, by his grace. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, please open them and turn to Colossians 1.28. We're going to start there today. And today, we're actually going to be going into chapter 2. I know a lot of you thought that that would never happen. It is going to happen. It's going to happen today. Um, as we wrap up this series. Colossians 1.28 says, Him, he's talking about Christ Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So the first thing I want to really note about this passage here today is very simple. At the beginning and at the end of this text, we see the center and the focus of not only this this passage, not only the ministry of reconciliation, but the entire Bible. We see the center, we see the core, the, the focus, the main focal point of the entire Bible. In the beginning, he says here, in him we proclaim, or him we proclaim. And at the end he says, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This passage is about one thing, Christ Jesus. So consider this, Paul sums up at the end of this passage, the entire mystery, the, this ancient profound mystery that's been hidden for ages with one word. 
God's mystery, which is Christ. And that is the very name that we are called to proclaim. So Jesus Christ is not only the means of our reconciliation, but he is the entire focus. He's the center of our reconciliation. He's the ultimate goal. He's both the path that we must walk and he's the reward that we receive at the end. That's who Jesus Christ is. So that's the main point. The question we have for today is, how does this affect Paul's ministry? Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So the first question we should probably ask is, who is everyone? Who is he talking about here when he says, I warn everyone, I teach everyone in all wisdom? And the answer actually is in chapter 2's first verse where he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Colossians. So he's talking about the Colossians in the church at Laodicea. And the struggle here, at least in part, is this proclamation of Christ Jesus. And he is preaching to the body. So we know from a few weeks ago that we talked about how his stewardship from God is for the sake of the body, the church. Paul is proclaiming teaching and warning the church. So when he says everybody here, that's who he's referring to. And really in this text here, not only is he talking about the church consummately, but he's focusing on the Colossian church and the church at Laodicea and these other communities of faith that have been impacted and affected by his preaching. Now the reason this distinction is important here is is this. Paul is a missionary, but he's not just a missionary. Missions is his main thing, for sure. We see that in Romans 1. But he also ministers to these churches that were planted through his preaching. And if you look at the language he uses to express here, he expresses this being a ministry that he is struggling in and toiling in. Um, The word struggle in both verse 29 and verse 1 is this Greek word agon. And it's usually translated as struggle or strive. But it can also mean to contend or to fight. Fight the good fight of faith, like Paul says to Timothy. That word is agon. And it's used in those ways throughout the Bible. And there's this idea of this intense struggle, this almost painful struggle that he has. The word that we have in the English language, agonize, comes from the Greek word agon. And it can even mean a conflict, um, this was actually uh, the name of, or kind of, uh, the, the, a version of this, a derivation of this word, was the name for a Greek contest. So it can mean a conflict. Paul is saying, I am fighting for you. I am fighting for you, Colossians. I am fighting for you, even though he's never seen them face to face. And we know that that's the case because, as we've learned before, Epaphras, the person who's come to Paul and asked him to write this letter, is the one who planted the church at Colossae. And Epaphras, likely because he heard the gospel being preached by Paul in Ephesus, Epaphras has come back to Paul and said, hey, listen, there's something going on in this church. I need you to speak into it. I need your wisdom to speak into it. I need God to speak to them through you. And so Paul feels this heavy obligation, this heavy pressure in him that these people would know God rightly and truly feels responsible for their edification and encouragement, which is why he uses these words struggle, these words toil. Um, And so these people, he's never met. He has never met. Now, I think a lot of pastors can feel the pressure of probably people that they've met and interacted with and that they're pastoring personally. They feel the heaviness of that, the weight of this. He's never met these people. His preaching indirectly caused them to come to faith through Epaphras, And he's not their pastor directly, but he feels like every single word he speaks to them has eternal implications. And there's a reason for that. They do. And so when he expresses agon, I I agonize over you, I, I strive and I struggle for you, that's an accurate depiction of this experience. So we've got his heart now. We understand Paul's heart. We understand who he's talking to. What is he saying? What is he after in this text? Now, um, first it says that he is proclaiming Christ. Him we proclaim. And he's doing this. It manifests itself through warnings and teachings. We warn everyone. We teach everyone. And that's his proclamation of Christ. He is 
counseling these brothers. He is admonishing them, um, these believers in Christ. That's how the proclamation of Christ goes out to the church, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Now, if you're here last week, part of that line, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, will sound a little bit confusing to you. Because last week we spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 1 talking about how the message of Christ, the message of reconciliation, is not a message of wisdom. In fact, Paul says, I speak Christ crucified, which is foolishness. It's not a message of, with words of wisdom. Um, Paul says, however, here that he is speaking in all wisdom. And so the question we have right now is, why is he saying these two different things? Why, why does he say in one way, I do not speak in words and wisdom? And then here he says, warning and teaching everyone in all wisdom. And for that, we need to head to 1 Corinthians 2. So if you could move there, we're going to look at a section of that text. Last week, we were in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31. And Paul, at the end of that text, sums up God's work, by, or sums up his understanding and comprehension by the Spirit of God's work in our hearts by saying, God called us. He says that our salvation, every part of it, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption are entirely and completely from God. We did not do any of those things on our own. Even though we were preached a foolish gospel. And he says in that text that the foolishness of the world, or he says the foolishness of the gospel became wisdom uh, from God for us. What was once foolish, he says, became wisdom. And the question we have to ask is, why are there different kinds of wisdom being used here? What does Paul mean by in all wisdom in Colossians? So listen to chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. And I want you to listen to closely how Paul describes two distinct kinds of wisdom that he's referring to. It says in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, church at Corinth, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why is that, Paul? He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he continues and he says this, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So there is a wisdom here that's different than the wisdom of men. Although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Paul says he and his crew of missionaries do not impart plausible words of wisdom. They do not impart the wisdom of men. In fact, when he preached the gospel to Corinth, he's saying here, I was scared. I was scared out of my wits. Let me use his exact words. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So I think we need to pause just for a second. This line from the Bible should encourage us. This should encourage us profoundly. We are believers in this part of the world in large part because of the Apostle Paul, because of God using the Apostle Paul. He opened his mouth and he proclaimed the gospel. He proclaimed foolishness, Christ crucified. And when he proclaimed Christ, he did so recognizing that God was going to work in his words and we are the result. We are the fruit of that labor. So, <laughs> I want you to know that you have a right when you communicate the gospel to somebody to be scared, to feel scared. You have a right to be in fear and trembling with your words. But that should not stop you from proclaiming the gospel. That should not hold you back from proclaiming, being a witness for Christ and proclaiming Christ crucified. I would challenge you to embrace your fear with the Apostle Paul. 
embrace your weakness in that moment. Embrace your trembling. When it comes, and the reason why this is, this is designed this way, this is not an accident that we tremble and are fearful when we preach the gospel. The reason it's designed this way is so that we never recognize that we're the ones who are actually doing this. Witnessing this way in our fear is a gift from God to keep us humble so that every single time we witness, we recognize that if God, if it happens, if these people see Christ for who he is, it's God who did that. Trembling as you're sharing the gospel is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. So don't worry about that. Don't concern yourself with that. Embrace that fear and recognize that you're doing just what the Apostle Paul did when he preached the gospel. So now back to Paul. He's saying here, he doesn't impart the, uh, the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of the rulers of this age. That's not what he's imparting. He is imparting the wisdom of God. So Paul saying that the gospel isn't understood in natural wisdom of the world he is communicating that there is another kind of wisdom out there that tells us the gospel. It is the secret and hidden wisdom of God that God decreed before the ages began. And he decreed it for our glory. Now this is remarkable because if you remember a week or two ago, we looked at the language that Paul uses to describe the mystery of God in Colossians 1.26, and it is almost identical to this passage in what it's communicating. This is what the Colossians 1.26 passage says. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The word secret in the Corinthian text here is identical with the word mystery in the Colossian text. He's talking about the same exact thing in Colossians that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. This mystery that Paul says is Christ Jesus in the book of Colossians is the same wisdom that Paul is pre- talking about to first, the first, in the 1 Corinthians uh, 1, or 2 rather. And Paul says that this wisdom is not the wisdom of the age, nor it is, is it the wisdom of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. Now why would he express that? Why is he telling us that? He's saying that these rulers and their wisdoms will be one day nothing. They will be nothing. But he says that the wisdom that we get from God is not that wisdom. It's not the same wisdom. The wisdom that we get from God was decreed before the ages began. And it is for our glory. So in that short four or five words, he is taking eternity and he's stretching it at both ends. He's saying it was decreed by God before there was any universe. And it will be with us to the very end, to eternity future. <clears throat> Which means that this wisdom will never pass away. This is not the wisdom of the world. This is God's wisdom. And he's going to explain that in verse 8. Where he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had understood it, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, this is the wisdom he's talking about, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Paul says the Spirit is is how God has revealed this secret and hidden wisdom. Paul says that the reason that Jesus was crucified is because these wicked rulers, they couldn't understand the wisdom of God. They couldn't see it. When they looked at Jesus Christ in the face, they did not see the wisdom of God, and so they killed him. They killed the Lord of glory. Glory was looking at them in the face and they didn't see it. But the Corinthians and the Colossians and us, we've seen it. We've seen who Christ Jesus is. And Paul goes back into Isaiah 64, 6, or 4, and he explains why this wisdom is hidden from people like these rulers. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is saying that no one, no single human being can understand or even conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. It is beyond their comprehension. And it takes a supernatural work of God through the Holy Spirit to reveal this to them. Now, we covered last week that it is God who reveals this to man, not man. This week, we are learning now that the means by which God reveals this to man is by giving us his Holy Spirit. Paul is telling us here how this is happening. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12, just a few verses down, he actually sums it up very neatly. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So one of the reasons why God gives us His own Spirit is so that we can understand the things freely given to us by God. It's so that we, Risen Hope, and the Corinthians, and the Colossians, and everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, so that we can understand and comprehend who He is. (laughs) And we can understand ultimately that passage in Isaiah that says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no what the heart of man cannot even imagine, the only way, the only way we can truly understand who God is and what he has planned for mankind, for his people, is through his spirit. That's the only way that we can understand it. He needed to give us himself for us to understand it. So back in Colossians, when Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, the wisdom that he's talking about here is the wisdom that is given to us through the Spirit of God. And that's Paul's ultimate purpose in this text here. He's saying in Colossians 1.28, the, the goal that he has here is that through the Spirit, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Spiritual maturity for those found in Christ. That is his goal. And Paul is struggling and toiling and fighting for them to be mature. Even these people who he's never, ever laid eyes on. He's never met them. He's never talked to them face to face. He is hundreds and hundreds of miles away from them. But he's saying to them, listen, I love you. I love you. I am toiling for you. I am fighting for you. But the one thing we can't ignore here is that if we look at verse 29 in Colossians, we can see that when he toils and struggles for these people, it's not in his own strength. It is not in his own strength. Paul does not take any of the credit here. He says, in the strength that Christ has provided me. Even in his struggling and even in his toiling, we need to recognize that God is the one that's doing the heavy lifting. For Paul, God is the one who is strengthening him. This is all God's work. Now the last question we have, and this is really going to take up the rest of our time together today, is what is what does Christian maturity look like? How does Paul describe for us, for those who are in Christ, what Christian maturity looks like. And I think this will be the most practical of what we talked about today, so hopefully it's helpful. Now remember what I said at the beginning? Paul wants his ministry to accomplish specific things. He's been given a desire from God for them to accomplish specific things, for the things that he's doing right now, how he's proclaiming Christ, to have a specific end and a specific goal. This is what it is. If we look at Colossians 2.2. He says these three things, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So there are three distinct things here. They are connected. They are linked together. I'm going to list them for you, and then we're going to look at each, each of these three things. The first is this, that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouragement. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's number one. Number two is this, that this encouragement leads them to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. And the third is that this encouragement leads them to reach the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So encouragement, assurance, 
And the third is knowing Christ Jesus. Let's go through these in order. The first is that their hearts may be encouraged. And he describes this as them being knit together in love. Have you ever considered Christian fellowship, Christian relationships as being knit together in love? Being a Christian, being someone who trusts in Christ Jesus and his work alone, means that your heart is literally woven together with the hearts of other believers. Which is an amazing choice of words for Paul to use to describe this reality. Now the word he uses here for encourage, the full definition in Greek is actually really compelling. Encourage doesn't really capture all of it in the English language. It can mean to summon or to comfort, but it's really a compound word that carries with it this idea, this concept of getting up close and personal with someone. It's this picture of being drawn into a deep relationship. And that's what Paul's describing when he says, your hearts need to be knit together with other believers in love. Is that how we see other Christians? Is that how we see other believers? Do we feel like our hearts are, when we interact with them, when we, have, when we think about them, when we pray for them, are our hearts knit together with them? Listen to John 17, 20 through 23. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father shortly before the cross for everyone who will believe in him. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples who are by him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may believe so, they, so that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. That is an amazing passage. That is a prayer of Jesus for you. You were in his mind when he said that. Jesus is describing here in his prayer what exactly Paul is talking about, this idea of these hearts in the Colossian church, in the hearts of every believer being knit together. One of the great effects of the gospel in the heart of the human being is this idea of love, this concept of Christian fellowship and love. Paul proclaims Christ so that the church, this body of Christ, would be united and love each other that they would love each other so much that it would look like to the world their hearts are knit together. They love each other. They are one body. Jesus says that they may be one even as we are one. He's talking to the Father. Now contemplate that for a second. God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. They are more one than anything else in the universe. There is nothing with more perfect unity than the Trinity. And yet Jesus is praying that we would be like that. We would be part of that. He even says like the, the vocabulary that, that they could use at that time was, it only allowed Jesus to say, listen, this is the kind of unity that I want, Father. I want them, I want it to be like me and you. I'm in you and you are in me. That's how he describes his unity with his Father. It's, there's no division between us. There's distinction, but there's no division. We are one. And that's the kind of unity that he's praying for for these people. And when we believe in Christ and trust in his work on, on, on the cross, we are grafted into Christ and we share that exact same profound relationship with the Father and with every other Christian brother or sister in the world. <laughs> and so how did this happen? How does this happen? Is it a switch that just gets flipped on? Do we read something in the Bible and all of a sudden it comes to, to life for us? This is how Romans 5, 5 tells us it happened. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are able to love each other 
with the exact same love that God has for us and for his son because he has given to us the Holy Spirit. So once again, we see God's gift of the Holy Spirit, his gift of himself is the means by which we are able to have and embrace the very love that God has himself for us. So let me ask you this question. Do you feel like that's the affection that you have for other believers? A supernatural love and affection. Do you feel like your heart is knit together with other believers? <laughs> that's not where Paul stops in Second, uh, Colossians 2.2. 2. Look at this. Number two is assurance. So we have unity, the, be encouraged in, 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 in the unity and love that we experience in the body. And number two is assurance. He says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding. So Paul is saying that this love that is shared among fellow believers allows them to reach something, something else that's in addition to this unity and this love that they experience. And he describes it as all the riches of full assurance. Now, what could he possibly mean by that? Well, Paul, a few verses above, uses riches, actually just four verses above, uses riches to refer to this, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this glory, this hope of glory is two things. We've talked about this before. Part of it is Christ in us, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ being inside of us. And the other part of it is this hope for glory. And so the riches of full assurance that Paul is talking about here is somehow connected to the glory of Christ Jesus, the future glory of Christ Jesus, this profound hope of glory. And what Paul is saying is that with Christ in us, we recognize and are confident that the hope of glory is real. That the reality of Christ being in us isn't just a present experience. It is a laying hold of a future reality and believing it and knowing it to be real. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 actually explains this very clearly. It says this, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. That's the hope of glory. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Then he says, In him, in Christ, you also, believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So Paul is saying, In Christ, we believers have obtained an inheritance. He says that when we heard the word of truth, when we heard the gospel of our salvation, and we believed in Christ, God came to us and he sealed us. He put his seal on us and he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, which Romans 8 would tell us is the spirit of Christ himself. God put his spirit in us, not just as a present reality. God put his spirit in us, which is massive in and of itself on its own, he put his spirit in us so that we would have a guarantee of the future reality, the future hope of glory. This is where our assurance comes from. God's spirit dwelling in us. God's spirit is the guarantee of this possession, this inheritance, until we actually have it in our hands. And I want, I want to just take a second and just think about this for a second. God's seal on us, believers, isn't simply something in creation that he applied to us. God's seal on us, the creator himself that he has given to us. The Holy Spirit of God, which is profound. There isn't any other sign that you can think of that is greater than this. God doesn't apply something to our lives that's part of created reality. He comes into our lives and dwells in us as the creator. Now that's the second thing 
that, that Paul hopes to achieve through proclaiming the word of Christ. Here's the third thing, the final thing. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, number one, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And the final thing is the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul says the knowledge of God's mystery is Christ. And he wants them to basically, what he's saying here is, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know him we proclaim. That's his goal here. That's the ultimate goal that he's trying to present before these people. So what does this mean? Does it mean simply knowing of Christ, knowing him intellectually? I went on a uh, business trip last week, (coughs) um, and me and an associate were sitting down at a restaurant, and we were talking about Christianity. Um, He, uh, I could tell in our conversation about Christianity, he's not uh, explicitly a believer. He would say he is, but not based on some of the stuff he said. Um, and we were just going back and forth. It was actually a really great conversation. And I could tell in the conversation I had with him that he was focusing on God. He didn't say Jesus at all. Now, he's vaguely Catholic in his upbringing, um, has not gone to church in, or mass in a while. Um, and the thing that was interesting about um, him was I, I just basically asked him straight up. I was like, so what's your opinion about Jesus Christ? What do you think about Jesus And he said, his response was, I actually don't think a lot of him. Um, He said, I know Jesus was a real man, and I believe he was God because that was what I was taught. But I haven't done a lot of research, and I don't really care to know any more. I think it's kind of extra. I think as long as I know God, I know Jesus. Now, here's the problem with that, is that knowing Christ as a historical figure is not the knowledge Paul is talking about here. That's not the knowing of Christ he's talking about here. Knowing Christ even as the God-man, as God in the flesh, isn't what Paul's talking about here. Even knowing Christ as a man who lived, died on a cross, and rose again, isn't what Paul's talking about here when he says the knowledge of Christ. You can know those things very well and still never taste them as delight. You can know them intellectually and not be dominated by the glory of Christ, not be dominated by his purposes in the world. Anyone can know Christ like that, intellectually, as an idea, as a fact. It does not require the Holy Spirit at all. And there are many theologians who are not Christians because for that same reason. They're simply facts. They're not irrelevant facts. They're important facts. But the knowledge that Paul's talking about isn't the knowledge here. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, is a completely different category of knowing. And Paul in Philippians 3 explains to us what that knowledge is. He takes his his life as a Pharisee, which was a very envious life, and he says, this is the life that I had as a Pharisee, a Hebrew Pharisee, before I met and encountered Christ Jesus. And this is the life I have knowing Christ. I want you to listen to the words he uses here. (laughs) Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in the natural man, I have more. Here's my pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. You don't get any better than that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. No one was more radical than Paul. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had in those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Then he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Praise be to God. Paul says there is nothing in this world that can be compared to knowing Christ. 
absolutely nothing. He says, line up everything this world has to offer me, every single drop of pleasure, every single drop of professional and self-fulfillment, every single drop of gratification, line them up, all worldly value in front of me. I count them as rubbish. And I will gladly suffer the loss of all of those things. And rubbish here, the ESV sanitizes it a bit, (laughs) is a pejorative for dung. So I'll let your imaginations go where that is. Uh, Paul uses it explicitly here. And the comparison he has in mind is, knowing Christ is so completely superior to every other thing in this world, there isn't even a comparison. The delta is immeasurable. Listen to how he puts it. I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I'm going to ask a poignant question. This is for me, and this is for all of us, really. Do we see knowing Christ as a reality of surpassing worth, or is it just something we do intellectually? Is it just words in a sentence, and we believe them, or do we know Christ the way that Paul knows him, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing Christ is not just knowing a fact about a man or about something that happened in history. Knowing Christ is the deepest possible relationship you can conceive of. There is nothing equal to this. Knowing Christ is giving up everything to gain him, to have him as your own. Listen to Jesus in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, or in of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. This right here is the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about here. Paul desires to gain Christ even if it costs him every other thing that he has in his life. He is not afraid of it at all. He wants Christ Jesus. He wants to be found in Christ Jesus, not having a righteousness that was achieved by his own moralistic pursuits as a Hebrew Pharisee. He doesn't want any of that. He wants a righteousness that comes when you let go of all of that and you say, I want Christ alone. I want to trust in Jesus alone that I may know him. And so Paul continues along this line of thought and says, I I don't want to just end with me knowing him. I want to tell you what this means. Like what's the culmination of it? What's the purpose of me knowing him? He says that I may know know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. So somehow knowing Christ and the resurrection are connected And they're connected in in an interesting way. Paul says that I may share in his sufferings, that I may become like Christ in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection. So Paul wants to be raised by the dead by any means possible. Now, why does he want that to happen? What's the purpose? What is the end game? Isn't just knowing Christ enough? Isn't that sufficient? What is so special about the resurrection? Well, we're going to answer that, but what I want to do is I want to show you how the resurrection connects with the Holy Spirit that was given for assurance and the Holy Spirit that was given for love. Romans 8, 9 through 11. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, or anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How are we raised from the dead? The spirit of the living God raises us from the dead in the last day. Christ in us is the hope of glory. For Paul, the spirit 
The Holy Spirit is the center of knowing Christ. It's the center of what it means to belong to Christ. Not only does the Spirit reveal the mystery of Christ to us, not only does the Spirit give us love for, the other, for other believers, not only does the Spirit um, um, cause us to have assurance and profound confidence that he will come for us in the end and give us our inheritance, but the Holy Spirit at the very last day will raise us from the dead. Paul is captivated by Christ because the Spirit of God lives inside of him. <laughs> but what is, again, the big deal about resurrection? Paul, what's your preoccupation with this being raised from the dead? He says, by any means possible. Why does he so desperately want this? John, 1 John 3, 1 through 2 tells us, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It did not know Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. The reason Paul desires the resurrection so much isn't just because he wants to live forever. It isn't just because he doesn't want to decay. He doesn't want to suffer decomposition. It isn't because he wants to go to hell. He doesn't want to go to hell. The reason that he wants the resurrection so much is that in the end, he gets more Jesus. He gets more Jesus. That's the reason he wants the resurrection so much. The resurrection signals for him the pressing over the threshold into the most intimate possible dwelling with Christ that human beings can experience. We will be with him where he is. So the point of the resurrection isn't just to live forever. That's not the point of the resurrection. The point of the resurrection is that we would grow in, in knowing Christ in, in such ever-increasing intensity and joy that we would um, be caught up in and swallowed up in this eternal life at the end of the age. Paul wants Christ. He's so captivated by Christ. He wants to know him, and he wants to be raised like him in order to know him more and to know him forever. That's why, he's, that's why John says, when Jesus finally appears, the reason we'll be like him is because we're going to look at him. And we're not going to see him the way we've seen him our whole lives. We're going to see him with such clarity that we will see him as he is. We will know him as he rightly should be known. That's what the resurrection is about. Now what John described, this is the most critical part of today, isn't free. Knowing Christ as he really is isn't free. Assurance and love for all the saints isn't free. These things are not free. When Paul says, him we proclaim... He means Christ Jesus who's been crucified. We proclaim Christ crucified. As John Calvin would say, Christ clothed in the gospel. And what the gospel is, is that this man, Jesus Christ, died to secure our everlasting joy. That's what he purchased on the cross. Forgiveness of sins is not free. Not at all. The love of God being poured in our hearts is not free. The Holy Spirit being given to us so that we have assurance for our hope and glory was not free. That was very expensive. That was very costly. It was not free. Even the very last surge of energy in us that would raise us from the dead, none of that was free. It cost the eternal Son of God His very own life to secure. All of this was bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified is the reason we're here sitting in chairs, the reason we're here worshiping together, the reason we're here we're listening to God's word is because everything that we needed to experiencing full and lasting joy was purchased through Christ Jesus. And God did this. We're going to take communion in, in just a moment here. And I'm going to ask, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you trust Jesus Christ, um, and you delight in him, you are welcome to participate. I just ask that when you take the elements, what I want you to focus on today, what I want you to consider as we worship with our, with our mouths and worship with our hearts, the cost of every single benefit that was purchased for you. Everything we've talked about today, 
everything that God bought for you on that cross. And I want you to, to consider and contemplate the greatness of the fact, this mystery, that God would put himself in us so that we would know it, that we would love it, that we would know Christ, that we would be assured of our, of our hope of glory. <clears throat> and so let me pray here in a moment here, but I, I want to just reassert, this wasn't free. The most profound reality in the life of a Christian is that somehow the creator of the universe got down into weak human beings who are preoccupied most of the time with sin and with defiance and says, I will have you as a son. I will have you as a daughter. And the way I'm going to tell you how much I love you is I'm going to dwell inside of you. There is nothing more profound than that. God wants to be closer to you than your own skin. That is how he confers to us this, and that was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's worship. Heavenly Father, you are such a great God, and your worth and your value is beyond measure. One of the greatest difficulties we face right now, Lord, is that it is almost impossible for us to conceive of and for us to imagine a reality when the, where the God of the universe comes to us and says, I want to be in you. You need me because I want you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ like I love them. You need me because I don't want you to doubt that I have you. I will seal you. You are mine in the, in the day of redemption. You need me because what eternal life really is, is knowing Christ Jesus. And when he appears for those who are his, we will see him as he really is and we will become like him. Our bodies will be raised, we will be glorified, and we will be with him forever. And so, Father, I pray that you would take these next few minutes, this worship that we have for you, the communion, Father, and that you would use that time to press these great realities into our hearts, that we wouldn't simply hear them, Father, but that they would become profoundly real for us. We give you all the glory, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.